Hey everybody, thank you so much for tuning into Hannah and Erica Birding. We're a couple of super bird nerds that are out there looking for adventures and to look for some birds. She's Hannah and I'm Eric. And we bring you this podcast to share our adventures, which we find very entertaining. I find them entertaining. And exciting. Um, with you, and also to talk about other thoughts we have about other birding topics, because there's a plethora of things happening in the birding world, and we just, we need to talk about it, which I'm sure you do too, and you need to listen to them, or you can if you want. Um, So just a couple of disclaimers, we're not experts, if we discuss anything that's controversial, we hope you keep an open mind, and also just remember that what we discuss, um, it's our own opinions, so yeah. That's that. Thank you. So, how's it going? It's good. It's been nice and fantastic weather for the last... Day? Eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, up here on the Oregon coast, it's been pretty miserable weather. Well, except for today, it's been fantastic. We got out and spent the entire day painting the hotel. Yeah. So That was, that was fun. No birding today other than, you know, the things that flew over. Lots of barn swallows. Yesterday, Eric was painting the chimneys on the top of the hotel, which is terrifying. (laughs) Second story. And there was a group of goals that were, like, super (laughs) pissed off. They they wanted to have a conversation with me because the chimneys are their perch points, I guess. They just like to hang out up there. And I was busy painting them, and they did not like that. They had a lot of words to say. My mom came up with some whole story about... That there was a, a council of three goals that were directing the younger juvenile goals to go and attack. Or the juveniles were definitely hanging out a lot closer. The, <laughs> the, the immatures, the the non the non adult plumage goals. We had a whole storyline going. <laughs> it was pretty entertaining. Yeah. Well, also yesterday, first of season, Vox the Swift. Yes, one flew over. Yeah. It was exciting. Very exciting. April twenty third, Vox the Swift. Yes. Mark in the calendar. <laughs> Well, that's our uh, birding birding news for the week. Is there other birding news from around uh, around the country, Hannah? Yeah. Um, so one of the really cool things is that there was a white wagtail, which is a Code 3 in Clark, Nevada, which that's pretty exciting. It's, it's normally an Asian bird, and it must have just got lost on spring migration. Is Clark, Nevada, is that um, Las Vegas? Yeah, Clark County. Okay. I'm pretty sure. You're pretty sure? Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm not familiar with my Nevada counties. I feel like we've gone over about how geology is... Geography? <laughs> well, also geology. <laughs> also geology. <laughs> yeah. Geography is challenging for you. Yeah. Not, um, not the smartest cookie in the bunch. Yes, you are. Uh, also, red-footed booby was in Los Angeles area. That's code four. And in Texas... Ooh, this is exciting for us. In Texas, uh, two different... Sightings of fork-tailed flycatchers, which are code three, were seen in Chambers County, and uh, there was one in High Island. Oh, that's really close to where we're going. Yeah, so I was kind of thinking our last day we should go to High Island. Just anyways, just to yeah, get just, it? just for funsies. <laughs> yeah. Um, so those are pretty exciting. Also, a white-faced ibis was up in New York. Huh. Kind of random up there, and a Louisiana water thrush is in Montreal. That's that's. I feel like really far out of a range for a water thrush. Definitely. But cool. Definitely way up there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So those are just some of the local, or the the birding rarities that have popped up. Um, Around the country. Yeah. Other news, we have been invited to come back to the Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival for year 2019, which I believe is the 25th anniversary of the festival, right? No, it's the 26th. 26th. Yeah, what? Last year was the 25th. Okay, well, still very exciting. I can't wait. I'm and excited. If you guys are going, uh, or if you're thinking about going, you know, hit us up. And if you have any questions, or if you want to see us, if you don't want to see us, you should probably just like realize we're there and just kind of avoid us. Yeah, I mean, that's a possibility that we might meet. It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, there has been a new. Uh, update with eBird, which Eric is our eBird expert on the podcast. What have you noticed about it? Well, there's been a whole bunch of things. So the, the most recent update to eBird has been mobile focused. So it's making a lot of things more easily 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 visible on the phone. So you can go back and look at checklists and stuff significantly easier. Not not the app itself being upgraded, but the website. Um, there's been a handful of complaints about it, but I mean, anytime there's change, there's always complaints. 
complaints and people people who love it, people who hate it. Every single time there's change for everything. I really like the new update. It's it's different. Like there's it's the way they've arranged where the pictures are on the on each of the checklists is different, but I like it because it works great on on the phone and 99.9% of the time I look at it on my phone. So it's a great update for the phone. Not super great for desktop, but I'm sure they'll make some, make some tweaks and adjustments. It was a, it was a big change and they're going to make some smaller <laughs> changes along with it, I'm sure. Yeah, and I'm sure they listen to all the reviews and oh, criticism yeah. that they get and then roll that into the... They're probably listening to this right now and like telling us how we're... Bad at reviewing them. And we have some <laughs> changes to suggest now. I'm just kidding. We love eBird. We I love eBird. It's it's my favorite. Uh, Is she an eBird tattoo? It's my favorite .org. Out there. <laughs> Your favorite .org. Yeah. You don't have a favorite .org? You know, I'll have to think about that. <laughs> so go ahead. Um. So we have another. We have our uh, Ask Hannah and Eric corner to bring back. Yeah. We had a question from. Had a sl- slight hiatus on that one. Um, not due to us at all. It was due to you guys just knowing everything about birds and not having any questions for non-experts like ourselves. Or we've just answered everything that anyone wants to know. Yeah, probably. I mean, we're (laughs) open to any questions, not just about birds. Um, I have answered just so many random questions in my life (laughs) as an interpreter. (laughs) So anyways, this one was from Alan. Um, he said, hi, Hannah and Eric. This question is for Hannah because I think she's the bird audio recorder of the family. Yes. Which, no, it's not me. It's actually Eric. I, uh, I love to record media pictures and audio. Let's just, <laughs> let's just start off with this real quick before we get to his question. So Eric started recording bird sounds for this podcast because he was like oh we need intro and outro calls and, that'd and be i really- want to do everything ourselves because i don't want to have to worry about what's part of public domain yeah what's copyright copyrighted all that stuff so if we record it all ourselves, we don't have to worry about anything yeah because we're cheap yeah <laughs> I don't want to pay for a service, and then I don't want to steal things for free and I don't get in get trouble. Sued. I, yeah. Well, and it's also someone else's work. Some some people have worked hard to make these things. Oh yeah, there's that too. So I don't want to. Anyways, I don't want to open that can of worms. At first, Eric was like, "Okay, you know, I'm happy with the setup that I have, and like it's his phone that he's been recording things on primarily." Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Yeah, that that's great. That's that's good." And I was like, "I know Eric. I know how this is going to turn out." <laughs> and it turned out exactly the way I thought it would, where he's like, I need something better than this. <laughs> and so we had to s- spend some money to get something better than that for his birthday present. But it was part of a gift card thing that we had from buying the lens. Wow, I so feel like that's a huge excuse. Yeah, it's an excuse. It's good. It, it was free money. They gave us money because we spent a bunch of money. Okay. But anyways, <laughs> I know that you're going to always want something better. <laughs> So getting back to Alan's question, uh, what recording device would you recommend for traveling to places like Costa Rica and also for general audio recording on other trips and other applications? Uh, P.S. He is also the gentleman who asked us about our Costa Rica trip and any more recommendations that we have on that. Well, so I guess we'll start with the recording device. Um, So for us... I, I don't know what I would like recommend to people. I haven't tried a, tried a bunch of stuff out, but for for what I use, I have a Samsung Galaxy S7. It's a, just my cell phone. Um, I downloaded an app um, called RecForge 2, and that uh, saves in .wav format, so I can record things just with a built-in microphone, and I get pretty good radio, pretty good uh, audio quality with just that. As long as I'm standing in the right place, I kind of wait for the conditions to be right, like low wind, no background noise, or low background noise. And then I'll record the bird, but uh, and all all the all the intro outro birds any of the transition bird calls that we've played every single one of them has done been done with the built-in microphone on my phone. I haven't done anything more than that just because we haven't had up until recently haven't had a microphone to take out in the field. Um, but to go to to someplace, I actually when we went to Costa Rica, we I brought the microphone that you got me for my birthday. Carried around the whole time. Not once did I take it out, which. Is kind of like feel silly, which kind of, kind of brings to the point like that I've heard this the best uh, the best camera is the camera that you have with you. So, kind of like the best microphone is going to be the microphone that you have with you that you actually that you're use. use. So I didn't use the microphone 
that I had in Costa Rica, so it wasn't a very good microphone. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I did I did use the camera. So I mean, if it's put away, it doesn't matter how good it is if you're not if you don't have it out. So um, the microphone that we did get that I carried with us um, all the way through um, Costa Rica that I didn't uh, end up using is a uh, what was it? Oh, it's an it's an Asden SGM nine ninety. And it's uh, it's a really good microphone. It's a good little shotgun microphone. It's about four inches long. Um, it plugs into your phone, which there's kind of a trick to it. There's it comes with a plug on it that looks like a phone jack plug, but it's what's called a TRS plug, and it doesn't have enough rings, so it. So it's not the right thing. It's not exactly the right thing, but the, but the Asden SGM 990i, which is what I got, it comes automatically with an adapter to a TRRS plug. Which plugs into your phone. So you can plug it right into your phone. Unless it's an Apple. Unless it's an Apple, yeah. It, it's a 3.5 millimeter jack. So it's it, it plugs into just a regular headphone jack. And you can use it like a microphone plugged into your phone. Which is really cool. And it works great. Like when I actually pull it out and use it. <laughs> and do you have to have an app on your phone to make no, it I work? No, I didn't. I, I can use... You can use the camera, the camera app. Or I'll just continue using the app that I have, RecForge 2. And it, it uses it just fine. I'm able to record, get fairly fairly good audio. And it, it cuts out a lot of background noise because it's a shotgun microphone, so it's directional rather than a, an omnidirectional microphone that's going to pick up everything all around you. And what's the fuzzy thing that's on it? The fuzzy thing that's on it? It's a windscreen. Okay. <laughs> the thing that looks like a Muppet hair it's, or a it's trolled like, hair. Yeah, it, it, it stops like small gusts of wind from interfering with the microphone, which is, which is kind of nice because then if... Like, the wind picks up, which it always does. As soon as you want to record something, the wind picks up. And what format does um, RecForge 2 have it? It saves it in dot, dot .wave format, okay. which is really easy for me to mess with with my audio editing program that I use, Audacity. So it's I, I can jump in there and I can cut from either end of it. I can amplify it to make it a little bit louder. And I can also cut out background noise, but I don't usually cut out background noise for like bird calls and stuff because usually... You usually want all of those background noises, like small, like other animals you can hear in the background and stuff. So, so what made you choose that one specifically? The Asden. Yeah, it was the most highly reviewed microphone for phones for that price range, or for for all, for, any for, any, price for any price range. Because if if you go, that's there's only a few different microphones that are made to plug into your phone. There's like three or four of them, and that's about it. Um, if you want to go to an actual good microphone, they they have like a, a whole different setup for the plug that doesn't plug into your phone. You can get some adapters, but the more adapters you have, the change in, in data that's transferred through them. So it, it kind of messes it up and gives you a weird funky signal. But um, if, if you were to upgrade, you probably want to go to something like with an actual recorder that's got a special plug for the microphone that's not your phone. And we purchased this through Eagle Optics. Which no, through B and H. Just kidding, B and H. <laughs> um, which you know we we buy a lot of things from B and H. <laughs> yeah. And you had an issue with the adapter; it wasn't working initially. Yeah, you... it, it came. It didn't work initially. I contacted the manufacturer, and they just sent me one for free, a brand new adapter. They, I, I had to register the product because I hadn't registered it because it was like day one that I got it, and it didn't work. Yeah, I mean, he kid in candy store the second it came. The second it came, I had it open, and I was trying to use it, and I was like, why does this not work? Oh, my gosh, this is crazy. But then as soon as, as, soon as I called them, they, they diagnosed it over the phone, and they were like, we're pretty sure it's this. They sent me a new TRRS adapter, and within, I don't know, I think it was two days shipping, I got it, and then I was up and running again. It, it worked fantastic. Cool. So, so um, he also asked, any more recommendations on Costa Rica? I can't. I, my number one place to go to, and I will definitely go back at some point in my life, is uh, the Monteverde Cloud Forest Reserve. I think yeah, that, that was fantastic. That was my absolute favorite place. Um, I didn't do any research going there. Our guide took us there. And honestly, I, I've seen that place on like Facebook, on Instagram for like years. And didn't really know anything about it other than I see these amazing pictures come out of it. And when our guide drove, Ullman, when he drove, drove us up to it, it was like, oh my gosh, I have seen this place everywhere. And it was just like such a shock that like, I had not planned on ever actually going to this place. And now I'm here. 
which mm-hmm. was pretty pretty exciting for me. Um, but just, I thought the birds there were fantastic. The trails were really nice. But you just be aware that we ran into a lot of guides that weren't guiding birders. They were just guiding um, tourists that I don't know why they were outside because they didn't look like they're normally outside people. Yeah, but they were outside there, so. They were. Outside's outside. They, no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not judging them on that. It's just like. I'm surprised they're outside. That's true, yeah. Um, so that kind of that kind of deter or deterred me from really going back maybe during tour seasons, like spring break, like when we were there. I yeah, I would break. try to avoid that <laughs> because that's when you're going to tend to get more people that um aren't necessarily nature people out in nature. But that honestly, the cloud forest was my absolute favorite. So I I would recommend that you don't miss that. Yeah, I don't know. I I I enjoyed everything we did. We weren't on a specific birding trip, so there's probably I'm sure there's so much stuff that we missed. If we if we were to go specifically birding, I'm sure we'd probably hit some other spots. Probably probably do some more stuff on the on the Caribbean side. Kind of hit some more of the um, eco regions of Costa Rica since it's a little it's a little split up. You have a couple like. Like significantly different like regions within Costa Rica where it's like really hot in some areas and cold and tropical and it's kind of, it's kind of got it all in terms of uh, like habitat. So you would suggest like getting a bit more sampling of the yeah. different regions or um, I, I thought we did pretty ecosystems. good for only having nine days. Like it, nine days was an, enough to do what we did, but especially that we weren't on a burning trip. Yeah, especially since we were on our burning trip, but. I don't know. I don't know exactly what more to recommend. I guess I recommend that we go back and <laughs> go figure out what we can recommend. Alan, to people. we will take you. <laughs> um, our recommendation is that you uh, just hire us to guide. <laughs> we don't know the birds that well. No, but we'll, we'll have fun. We don't know Spanish. I know Spanish a little bit, like hola and. I mean, I, I know how to. I know how to order good food. I feel like. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to do it in Spanish, but I can pick things off you the menu that are going to yeah. be good. Well, so thank you so much for sending yeah, in your you question. Yeah, thank you very much for the question. Yeah, we hope we were useful. And I'm sure Eric will include some of that information on the show notes. So you can uh, probably just click on B&H and click the add to cart. Oh, which yeah, I guess I could. They don't give us that. any money for that. But no. you're welcome, B&H. <laughs> <laughs> we, we just know that it's a great company that we like to use. Yeah, um, there's lots of reviews on the website, too, for the ads to 990. Yeah. And for, also, there was another, I think it was called iShotgun was the other one. Yeah. It was it was another one that looked it, it was neck and neck between those two. Yeah. Well, thank you. For and if anybody else has any questions, we are happy to answer them to the best of our ability. Yeah. So this episode, now that we're now that we're deep into it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this episode, we invited a very fascinating and brilliant woman. Nicole to join us. Um, she is just a very nice person that we met at the uh, Portland Audubon Christmas Bird Count, which we'll talk a little bit about in the interview. Yeah. And we got we finally wrangled her to sit down with us because it, it took two months of trying to coordinate schedules. Yeah, she, she'd be she'd be available, then we wouldn't, and then we would, and she wouldn't. We're was, very busy people. I know. Well, <laughs> it's hard to drive from the coast. <laughs> Um, anyways, we got her to sit down with us at the Lucky Labrador. In Which the, was loud. In the Portland, Oregon area uh, for a beer and to talk about birds. And we are just so excited that she joined us because she's just brilliant. She's doing some really cool things with the National Audubon Society, who yeah. she works for. And, um, yeah, I just, I really enjoyed listening to her. <laughs> I feel like in these interviews, I don't do a whole lot of talking because I'm just so engaged in listening what the person's saying. I know. I don't know how we find, like, such fascinating people. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or or why they even want to talk to us on our podcast. <laughs> but I hope it continues because she was pretty fascinating and she had quite the story to tell everyone. She did. Yeah. So, um, Eric did want to let everybody know that... The same... Disclaimer for every as per usual. <laughs> every interview. We are at a bar. Uh, it was Sunday night, so it wasn't as loud as it yeah. could have been. But there is quite a bit of background noise of a bar. So I, I could have swore I didn't hear anything when we were sitting there. And then when I went back and listened to this, it was like, oh my gosh, it's like louder than we are. So that just goes to show you what a microphone picks up. Yeah, that you don't necessarily know 
Or pay attention to. Don't even to. realize it's happening. Yeah. yeah. So so maybe someday we'll get better at picking locations that aren't as loud. But probably not. Yeah. Well, <laughs> please sit back and enjoy our interview with Nicole. We're here at yeah. the Luckily Labrador uh, pub in Multnomah Village, Portland, in Portland, Oregon. And we are so happy that Nicole joined us. And to talk about birds and Audubon Society and your amazing career that you've had. So, Nicole, would you like to tell us about yourself? Yeah, hi there. So, my name is Nicole Michael, and I am currently a senior quantitative ecologist with the National Audubon Society. And I'm just delighted to be here talking with you guys. Uh, you know, it was great to meet you at the, the Christmas bird count a couple months back now. And yeah. um, well, It's been like four months now? Uh, well, it's April. It's April. <laughs> so, what is that? How many months? Is it, it was in January? It was, yeah, was it, it was January. January. Was Jan- oh, it was January 5th, you're right. Yes, yeah, yeah it was right at the very right. end of the, of the survey period. Okay. I just, yeah, I'd been out of town for, for the holidays. Oh. I'd just come back. And um, yeah, anyway, so it was great to meet you, and I'm glad we finally got this opportunity to, to chat more. Yeah. Um, so, oh my gosh, tell you about myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> where to begin with the story? Uh, I've been, oh my gosh, well, I've been into birds since I was a young kid. My grandfather was really into birds. Uh, he had his backyard just full of bird feeders and bird houses. I remember learning at a very young age about the, the tree swallows and, and the other swallows of Capistrano and how they come back every year at the same time. And I just thought this was absolutely captivating to me as a kid. How do they know to come back to Capistrano at the same time every year? And so I learned about, you know, seasonal timings of birds and interactions. You know, he taught me about, you know, how he was having to specially design his bird houses so that the tree swallows could fit in, but the house sparrows who wanted to come Mm. in and and destroy the nets (laughs) couldn't get in there. And so that got me kind of interested in the birds. And uh, I remember the very first bird I identified uh, was with actually a National Audubon Society guide. And it was a very thrush in my backyard. It was a a robin that looked weird and had a necklace. (laughs) Uh, And so I was very excited about that. And then I went up to college and and it was a small college and the only like uh, animal zoology professor there studied squirrels. So I went and studied squirrels <laughs> in southeast Arizona where I could have seen some awesome birds that I That's still haven't cool seen. <laughs> I still have not seen a very bunting. I need to need to get back down there. Or not knowingly seen one. Um, yeah, so I you know, got into squirrels. And then I joined the AmeriCorps and I was living in Trout Lake, which is right at the base of Mount Adams, you know, in the, the Hood River Gorge area of Oregon. Beautiful area. And I got connected with some people who were going out birding every Tuesday morning. It was actually led by this woman named Kathy Flick. And it was this very inclusive group of people who went out. And, and there was this guy who could identify all the songs. And it completely changed my world. Like, <laughs> literally, suddenly, all this just background noise. It was birds talking to each other. You know, <laughs> yeah. you could tell that, oh, there's a common yellow throat. And, you know, there's a, an Audubon swarbler. And so I got really into it, and I started doing seasonal field jobs. I actually started with National Audubon Society. I was a, a naturalist at Corkscrew Swamp way back in the mid-1990s. Um, <laughs> then I just happened to get connected with the Institute for Bird Populations, and uh, they run the, the Monitoring Avian Productivity and Survivorship Program, so a, a mist netting and banding program uh, that runs across North America, and then they have a a similar program called Mosey down in uh, Wintering Grounds in Latin America. And my very first season with them, I was lucky they sent me to Yosemite National Park. So I got to spend a summer living in a tent (laughs) in a campground (laughs) and chasing, you know, uh, Lincoln sparrows and warblers in these gorgeous montane meadows every morning. (laughs) Shared my campsite with white-headed woodpeckers. Oh, wow. And um, just fell in love with birding. And so I ended up keeping coming back with IBP uh, as like a supervisory field biologist and then got hired with them. I ended up staying with them about eight years. You know, worked in the office in Point Reyes, did some awesome birding in Point Reyes, learned from some amazing, amazing birders. Uh, And I loved working at IBP and I I had a wonderful mentor there who got me into like modeling and statistics. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those weird people who actually really enjoys, you know, (laughs) geeking out on statistics and, and modeling. 
And so I went back to get my PhD and um, worked with uh, Tom Sherry down in at Tulane University in New Orleans. Arrived August 20th, 2005, uh, seven days or nine days before Hurricane Katrina. Oh my gosh. Fantastic timing. <laughs> but um, it worked out great. I did my PhD research down in Central America. I got to live in Costa Rica, wow. Nicaragua, and Panama oh for gosh. three and a half years, studying, so studying ant wrens and flycatchers, and and um, and yeah, and that was just amazing. And then I did a postdoc in Canada. Uh, I was there for three years, studying aerial insectivorous birds. Uh, and then I got literally my dream job with National Audubon Society. I literally didn't know the job existed, and I was asked to review a paper, and I saw it was written by someone who was a quantitative ecologist at National Audubon Society. And I saw that, I literally ran down the hall to my best friend's office and said, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't even know this, this job existed. I want it. How do I get this? Yeah. And less than two months later, the job was advertised and I got it. Oh my gosh, that's and perfect so timing. That was, talk about luck, yeah. And so that was uh, just over three and a half years ago now. And um, yeah, it's it's great. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, people like my mom are listening that might not know what a quantitative ecologist is. Oh, going to be my first question. <laughs> gotcha. So, um, <laughs> What, what exactly is a quantitative ecologist? That is a very good question. So uh, quantitative means we like to work with numbers. Mm -hmm. And so we do a lot of statistics and a lot of modeling, a lot of, a lot of math. And um, so when I started with National Audubon, uh, we had a much smaller team then. And so I was, I was the only quantitative ecologist. And so I did the analyses of data like the Christmas bird count mm -hmm. and um, lots of other kinds of data. One of the things... Some of the things we do are taking, you know, data from long time periods like Christmas bird count, mm -hmm. and using it to figure out how birds are doing over time. You know, are to figure out population trends. You know, which species are declining, which species are increasing, or stable, and where. Uh, another thing that we do a lot of is figuring out um, basically what birds need to live. You know, what kind of uh, land cover, what kind of habitat features, mm -hmm. uh, what kind of, you know, climatic conditions that they need. And once we know that, if you can collect, you can go out and, you know, you count birds at a place. And then you can pull in, you know, these data that can often come from uh, remotely sensed data sets. They're gathered on satellites. Okay. And so you can find out, you know, how much agriculture there is in the area. What is the mean summer temperature? And you can build these models that let you be able to predict that, okay, you know, we know that here there was five birds and this much forest and this median summer temperature. And over here, there was a little bit more forest and a similar temperature and you had more birds, you had say seven birds. And you do this over and over again. And then what it lets you do is, is predict in space and time. So then you can go over here where nobody surveyed, maybe yeah. can't, maybe can't get to it. Or you can go, you know, forward in time, uh, you know, with climate change. Like and project, projected models for temperatures and stuff? Exactly. You know, so you can take these, these yeah, climate, uh, like the CMIPS, um, you know, climate models that are projected into the future. And um, you can predict where birds will be, you know, in what kind of numbers. Uh, you know, at different at different scenarios, and so it's incredibly valuable information for you know deciding where should we work, where should yeah. we focus, oh, okay. you know, focus our policy efforts to protect an area, where should we you know be going out and and restoring marsh, you know, maybe if you're looking at say the Gulf of Mexico where there's going to be a lot of sea level rise and it's all very low. You know, maybe you want to go inland a little bit instead of right on the coast, and you're going to restore marsh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, that makes sense. So, do you do you identify with, with this information? Are you specifically looking to identify species that are likely to become extinct based on sea level rise, three or four degrees, and then focus efforts on like promoting building wildlife, like? Habitat, habitat and stuff for, for specifically for those species that you've identified as 
likely to be eradicated based or, on or priority species or priority species. Yeah, yeah, making totally. priorities. So that that's right. a big part of, we, of what we do. So, you know, I've worked a lot in the uh, the Gulf of Mexico because, as I said, I did my my PhD research. Although, you know, my research itself was down in Central America. I was living in New Orleans when I wasn't in the field, and so I have a strong connection to that place. So I've worked a lot in the Gulf of Mexico, including with Julie Raythmel, who I know you've, you've had on previously. <laughs> and that's one of the things we do is we are, we actually just released this report uh, in mid-February, uh, Audubon's vision, restoring the Gulf of Mexico for birds and people. And I did some of these models that I just described. And so uh, we produced these maps, you know, of the entire northern Gulf of Mexico showing you know, red hot spots where these are the areas where there's going to be the most birds of uh, the um, uh, the eleven focal species that we were we were prioritizing for uh -huh. this study. Uh, so yeah, you can identify your spatial areas that are most important. Yeah. Also species. So we have something called our birds and climate report. Uh, if, it came out 2015, so oh my gosh, four years ago now. And with that, <laughs> Time just goes so fast. <laughs> oh, it flies. Um, with that, we found that 314 species are, you know, based on these model projections in the future, 314 species are expected to lose over half of their range by 20, 2080. And okay. of those, 126 are expected to lose 50% of the range by 2050. You know, we're talking just 30 years from now. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. We're just talking about time flies. That's right around the corner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, if we're lucky, we'll see that, you know, yeah. so. And we'll include these reports in our show notes, too. So everybody yeah. gets a chance to look it over as the oh. article, and, and Eric will find them and put them in the show notes. Yeah. Or, or you awesome. can email me the links. And... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'll, exactly. make, I'll make it easier. <laughs> we'll do. More than happy to. <laughs> well, man, that's... That's a lot of really important yeah. work that is so amazing that, you know, you're able to sit and talk with us and, and our audience about that because I know there's a lot of background work that goes on with the National Audubon Society that, like, the normal public doesn't necessarily pay attention to or we're not even aware that that's happening. You know, we know I, that... I didn't know that Audubon was creating these reports and looking at this information, so... And I'm in the birding community. <laughs> I kind of feel embarrassed that I don't know, but... But I didn't know. Yeah. I'll be honest, until I started with Audubon, I didn't, you know, it, it, the development of the very strong science team that we have now, there, you know, as I said, when I started three and a half years ago, I was the only quantitative ecologist. Now I supervise a team of, of two other full-time people, plus I'm mentoring a woman who's, whose skill set is uh, in a slightly different field. She works with GIS and co-supervise somebody um, externally as well. So... And we have a total of 30 uh, people now in the science division. So wow. we're doing so much more. And, you know, the other wonderful thing that I love is working at Audubon is it's, in addition to the strong science team we have, we have wonderful communications people. Uh, we have people who run our, our Twitter feed and, you know, Instagram and Facebook. And they're, they're great. They're young. They're so much better than me. And <laughs> memes and everything. And, uh, you know, so they're really good at getting the information out and yeah. you know our website is developed by some really you know sharp people and and then we have policy people like Julie Raithmel who are uh, you know taking taking the science and going and putting it into action um, so hopefully more people will, will become aware you know some of the things that we're doing yeah, yeah, it's super important work. <laughs> so um, I, I imagine a lot of this is funded, and I'm not sure how much you can speak to this. A lot of this is funded by, we, we do pay membership, but that's probably a very small proportion. In addition to things like grants, and then do, is there a lot of federal funding that gets that National Audubon ends up getting somehow? Yeah, so I don't really know how it all works with the upper levels. Uh, that's that's you know, yeah, <laughs> beyond my my skill set or where my scope of work. Yeah. Um, I know that yes, membership certainly counts for some of the grants. You know, that's something that I actually spend a fair amount of time doing now mm. is is writing grants to, oh. uh, you know, work on various projects. Um, it's not something that's required for our positions, but mm. it's encouraged. Uh, but we do have funding that well, comes you, you in. you get more funding for things then if you can write grants. Yeah. Exactly. And then you and get free to do, money. Then you get to do more cool work. Yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> um, 
I know we get, um, you know, a lot of money from foundations, uh -huh. and for some of the big foundations. So, you know, more foundation, MacArthur, McKnight. You know, if you listen to NPR, like you know, all, some, all, the, all the some of the ones you hear on NPR. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, especially anything related to climate. So I know, you know, they give us a fair amount of funding. We also, you know, have individual donors who mm. occasionally give substantial gifts. Uh, we now just started a, a big migration program. Uh, we're, um, let's see, we've got three, no, four people full time now. We've got several other positions open, and we may be expanding to as many as ten. And that's thanks to the, thanks to the gift of of one uh, board member. Wow, that's incredible. Who just was very excited about the opportunities for what we could do around understanding full annual cycle, you know, where birds are, what threats they're facing at all stages, not just, you know, here in the breeding grounds, but, yeah. you know, winter, also in migration yeah. in winter when they face so many threats. Yeah. When other countries don't necessarily have the exact policies that, that we have, not that our policies are that great right now, but, but other countries, some of them not, are even less great yeah. than our policies. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's, there's a lot of dangers for birds. When they yeah. leave. <laughs> yes. Yes. Definitely. So many. So I, I wanted to ask. So you, um, you, you, you mentioned, I think four places or five places when you're when you're giving us a quick that you've lived, Arizona, Florida, um, Costa Rica, Oregon, California. California. Yeah. How many places have you? How many states have you lived in? That you birded. Okay. <laughs> how, so how much have you birded in the, in the United States? All of the states. All so when I, I'm. I guess I'm busier now. I was I would say lazier, but it's some combination of the two. <laughs> I don't tend to get out birding as much anymore, uh, unless I have an excuse. So I do volunteer with Portland Audubon on some of their community science uh, projects, which well, are really you, fun. Well, then you can count towards work things. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working. Yeah, it's exactly it's networking. Yeah, there we go. Networking, yes. community and, engagement. See, you guys, you guys are with me. Um, but yeah, when I was in my 20s, I was uh, I, I was a bit of a hardcore birder. Um, there weren't as many women that were like really into birding back then, at least that that I ran into in my circles. And um, yeah, I've I've lived in. If you define live as being there long enough to like ha have an address where you can get mail, yeah. um, I've lived living. in 17 states and five countries. Wow! Oh my gosh! And I've been to all 50 states and half of the Canadian provinces and about half of Latin America. Wow. And birding in all, all those places. <laughs> Are you a lister? So I have a list, but it is still on, it's on scraps of paper. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I had, because this is all, you know, when I was traveling, uh -huh. and it was, you know, a lot of it was when the internet was still quite young. Yeah. And so I have it in, like, field notebooks and written into the margins of, um, of bird guides. Quick, Eric, tell her about eBird. <laughs> <laughs> eBird plug, yeah. <laughs> So there's this thing called Eber. I joked that you should, they should put him on payroll because he is, does such a good job of outreaching about Eber. We went to Asia a couple of years ago, and he told every single person. every single person that I saw <laughs> told all of our guides. One one of our guides had heard of it, but he doesn't use it. And then the rest of them didn't have any idea. So I'm like showing them the app. I'm showing. I'm like I didn't have cell phone service. I didn't have internet or cell phone service. So I'm like showing him what my phone had cached. So I'm like, well, the only page that I can show you is my life list. So I'll show you this. <laughs> <laughs> this is something cool that it does. <laughs> so, so I have a confession to make. Like I use eBird data all the time. Uh -huh. I use eBird data a lot in our analyses. Yeah. I was going to ask if you guys use that. I'm terrible I'm terrible. <laughs> like I, I think I have, I was just entering data that I collected for the street corn lark survey for Portland Audubon. I think I have 24 checklists. Oh, <laughs> I I list obsessively. I, I I've been trying to I've been trying to be better about it. Like not better as in like a more rounded person, but better as in listing more. <laughs> but I, I've been like this year since since we moved since we moved back to um, Oregon, I was trying really hard, and then like I don't know. I think it was January first. I decided you know what I am going to make sure every single day I have a list. Awesome. And so far I'm I think I'm, I do streak out. I'm, I'm not every list. I, I'm, I have an 80, 84 day streak right now. Oh, that's pretty good. Wow. Which is pretty good. That's good. But it's not the whole year because I think, I think we're at like day 
102, I think. Sure. So I'm, that right. I'm I missed a little bit at the beginning. I didn't really get on the wagon that good to start with. But, hey, that, <laughs> but, that's but I've been on it for like 84 days. So. That's awesome. I'm, well, you know what? I mean, it's people like you that really contribute to science. So thank you. I, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, so um, we met at the Christmas bird count, the Portland Christmas bird count. And I'm curious, you know, I've done several bird counts, Christmas bird counts throughout the years. What, What is that data really going to? I know you talked a lot about, you know, the different projects that you guys have worked on, but like Christmas bird count data, what what does that influence? Or we, how does, we look at birds and then where does it go? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that data is so incredible. Um, and we're doing some really, really neat things with it. So at the Christmas bird count, uh, I talked, you know, just a few minutes early that morning. Uh, <laughs> it was early. We barely had coffee. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't had coffee yet. <laughs> anyway, um, so I talked a little bit about some of our, what I'll call our conventional results. So... You know, as you may know, the Christmas bird count has been going on since uh, 1900. Mm-hmm. So we just finished up our, our 119th count. Mm-hmm. This is the longest running uh, community science. And I, I just want to note that uh, we say community science rather than citizen science. Audubon made this switch intentionally recently in order to be more inclusive. You know, oh, we, okay. we had, um, uh, you know, input from, uh, huh. from, you know, different communities who felt... Uh, a little concern that, oh, do I have to be a citizen, oh. uh, you know, like a U.S. citizen yeah. to do citizen I, I had science. never even considered that being a, yeah. a restriction point or a, yeah. a point of non-inclusion. <laughs> but that's great that you guys bring it up and you addressed it. Like, that's, yeah. that's incredible. And this is, you know, this is one of the values and, and one of the reasons, many reasons why we need more diversity in science. Because I hadn't thought of that either. It never yeah. crossed my mind. But, uh, you know, it was brought up and, and we addressed that, so... Tangent to get back to <laughs> <laughs> to get back to the question, uh, yeah. So Christmas Bird Count is um, the longest running community science program in North America, and one of the longest running ones in the world. You know, 119 years and 1900. It started with 25 circles. There was just 27 people out there. They saw you know 89 species of birds, and the most recent year we have is. 2017, there was 73,000 people at 2,500 circles that counted 56 million birds. Oh my gosh! Uh, of 2,600 species, and so we've just had this tremendous growth. And with this growth, we have, you know, both these long time series. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned earlier, one of the things we do is try to figure out how birds are doing. You know, are they declining? Are they increasing? And you need these long time series. You know, in order to, to really detect the trend, there's yeah. a lot of a lot of noise. You know, you know, you guys are birders. <laughs> you know, you go out there some days, and it's a cloudy, rainy day like today, and you, you know, your birds that are right there are not necessarily going to be singing and that stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we have you know this incredible time series, and we have um, all this spatial coverage. And so, a number of years ago, we partnered with some of the very brilliant statisticians out at Patuxent uh, Wildlife Research Center that ran the Breeding Bird Survey. And they had developed these methods that are called Bayesian hierarchical models. And I won't get into it, but it's just some fancy math. (laughs) Fancy math. (laughs) Fancy math that lets you account for some of that noise, you know, of, you know, not seeing all the birds that are there, of... You know, a younger person's hearing being better than an older person's, or you know, one person being more skilled than another person, and so you can you know get these far more accurate um, estimates of these population trends. Hmm. And so we have conducted those trends for 541 species, and we make all this data publicly available on our website. Uh, this is fairly new. We just put it up last fall, last October. And so you can go in and, and look at these maps. You can pull up your favorite species. You can pull up, um, uh, you know, spotted toe here, you know, whatever you want to look at. And see, you know, their trends at a variety of different spatial scales, you know. Um, so you can see if they're, you know, increasing in some states, decreasing in others. And this tells you a lot about what's causing, you know, some of these these trends uh, and some of these patterns. So, you know, one thing is we use Christmas bird count data to look at range shifts. And we know, looking at about 300 species, that, um, you know, a, a lot of their wintering range is in the United States or is in North America. 
and they don't use feeders because you know there's a lot more feeders now so that makes things biased uh, but we know that the ranges have shifted since 1966 40 miles 40 kilometers um, wow. north, yeah. you know, between 1966 and 2013 was that's the data that we used here. Uh, and that's just on average. Some species have moved like hundreds of kilometers north. Um, we also just released a, a brand new paper where, you know, right now we can look at things at the scale of states or what are called bird conservation regions, which are these larger areas that have similar habitats and climates and, and management regimes. But we have this brand new paper, it was just published last week, where you can look like at much higher new. resolution. Brand spanking new, it's glowing. <laughs> You've heard it here first. <laughs> and um, with this, we get estimates down to 100 kilometers. And these models are, are much easier to run, whereas um, it used to take months to run the CBC models. Now we've got it, the regular models down to a couple weeks. These models run in like 10 minutes per oh species. Gosh. Oh my gosh. That's insane. Uh, it's incredible. <laughs> it's mind blowing. And you can, you know, you can enter in information like climate and um, uh, human population density. And so we showed, you know, American robins again showing this very strong range shift signal where they're decreasing in you know the southern edge of the United States mm -hmm. and strongly increasing across the northern regions you know <laughs> so populations are shifting north so that's what's out and uh, I can't say too much but we're working on something even cooler right now uh, where we're actually able to go back to about the 1930s and look at impacts of um, uh, land cover change and climate change oh wow uh, in the eastern U.S., so uh, stay tuned. Yeah, so is, really is cool. that is that just a new, like what you talk about going back to the 30s, is that just a whole other type of model to be able to account yeah. for different um, efforts or whatever, whatever was different for those older counts? Exactly. So we haven't been able to, we only went back to 1966 with the previous yeah. model. Uh, well, for two reasons. One is because we wanted comparison with breeding bird survey that started in 1966. Okay, I see. But also our methods changed a little bit in the 1950s and um, 1950s and early 1960s. And with the traditional methods, it just you couldn't really compare, you know, before okay. and after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this new method that uh, Tim Meehan, a quantitative ecologist on my team, who is just a genius at this stuff, <laughs> um, he came up with this new method that allows us to go back further in time. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's <laughs> exciting. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that, that pretty well answers the question of what happens to our CBC data. <laughs> yeah, we look at birds and that's what happens. Yeah, I mean... Mm -hmm. build, build models and create... Uh, Rain shifts. Yeah, definitely. Well, so we, you really are contributing to understanding how these species move more. Absolutely. No, I mean, and we couldn't do what we do without community scientists, you know, yeah. without the people that are out there collecting this data. And, you know, I know it's been a black box for, for people, and we're trying to, you know, change that by doing things like making this, you know, web, interactive website available. Yeah. And, um, Another program I haven't mentioned yet, but that I'd like to talk about is our Climate Watch program, and you know we send people uh, annual reports on that as well. But yeah, I mean, the data that community scientists and volunteers are collecting yeah. is enabling us to you know figure out you know how birds are doing, uh, where they're declining, why are they declining, and what we can do about it, and then take that to inform policy actions. So. It's, it's exciting and yeah. you know it's volunteers that enable it yeah that's awesome yeah a lot of volunteers <laughs> a lot of volunteers yes a lot of volunteers over a lot of hours yeah right <laughs> well I uh, you had mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, when you first started birding and you were kind of the only woman doing it and throughout your career you know have you how, how has being a woman shaped your career or has it I mean, do you find, face a lot of challenges? Like, did you? Do you now? Um, not to out anybody at Audubon or anything, <laughs> but how is that, has that affected your career? I would say I've been very lucky. I've been incredibly lucky. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, my first group birding experience was very inclusive. You know, it was, it was co-organized by a woman, and you know, which I think contribute to it, but all the people there were, were fantastic and, you know, great about teaching, you know, new birders. Um, I mean, certainly, I, you know, 
I'd be lying if I said it hasn't affected my career, but in a lot of different ways, you know, there would, as, you know, not necessarily as a career aspect, but just as, you know, a birder, you know, a lot of dismissal, you know, a lot of, um, oh, you wouldn't be interested, you know, you don't know what we're talking about, you know, that kind of thing. And all of my, all of, actually all of my advisors nearly, um, certainly all of my individual advisors and supervisors in my career have been men. Mm-hmm. And I've been lucky to have some just really fantastic, you know, advisors in academia and in the private sector. But, you know, I had, I had, you know, I've had other experiences too. I worked at one place where, uh, you know, I was in, I was in my 20s and I was young and I wanted to be like out doing stuff. I was a field biologist and I wanted to be out doing the surveys and, you know, doing the, um, you know, invasive species management, like the cool stuff. And we were told that, you know, the men get to do that. You need to, to look pretty and, oh you know, gosh. stand up front, uh, you know, where the public can see you. So, you know, things like that have happened. Um, but I feel that that is really changing for the better. Um, you know, there's, well, Hannah and I are, are both part of some Facebook groups that are bringing, you know, women and feminists, you know, of, of all gender identities together. And we're talking to each other and sharing our experiences and also um, spreading awareness. Uh, I was speaking with one colleague recently and, you know, she told me she was speaking to a a male scientist who actually caught himself over explaining and asked, oh, am I mansplaining? (laughs) Oh my gosh, that was great. (laughs) Um, You know, so things are really changing for the better. Yeah, I really feel encouraged, especially with that article that came out, what was it, yesterday or something that's created such a buzz. It was uh, Olivia Gentile's article, and mm-hmm. we'll post that in the show notes, too. But We shared it on Facebook, too. Yeah we, sh- yeah, we definitely shared it. And I think just the acknowledgement, you know, that there are issues in the birding community, and as well as the greater world community, of how women are being treated and diversity, you know, and minority groups. And I'm just so glad to see that somebody is acknowledging it in our community and you know there's been a great conversation around it of what we need to do or you know just just explaining it and talking about experiences that have happened to one another I think that has been a really interesting experience to go through yeah, and it's, and it's bringing it right to the front, not not like kind of it's it's not like a hidden article that's kind of off to the side. It's like right in the front. All all the major birding everything has been posting this article and talking yes. about it, big conversations about it, and it's not kind of like an off off to the side, like just just the just the one group over here. It's everyone, the whole yeah. the whole community, at least as far as I can see. I mean, and maybe our, I'm only part well, of the community that's seen talking about it, but. And it's changed so much. I would say even just let's, thinking back in less than 10 years, you know, I mean, like when I was in graduate school, I was, without saying too much, you know, I observed some, some very clear harassment, uh, you know, people at some field stations. And back then, it was just, it was a whisper, whisper network of women that we all, you know, like shared what we experienced with each other. And, and we looked out for people, like we warned new people, mm-hmm. um, you know, to just be careful around certain certain other people yeah um you know but it was all a women managed thing and um at the time i could i didn't really conceive that there was more we could do about it you know as, as graduate students who didn't have a lot of power um i tell you now though i'm just blown away by these you know younger women uh and women of all ages who are calling this stuff out and, yeah. and just enough is enough just Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The Me Too movement has just been wonderful, and I'm glad to see, you know, it's spreading amongst the entire burden community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so that's something that we, I mean, we haven't really been talking about Me Too or anything on our podcast, but we have been just low key trying to encourage like women on our on our podcast we've interviewed a number of women at this point who are in the birding community or you know adjacent to the birding community we interviewed an artist um who does a lot of bird watching uh painting Mm -hmm. and that's something that i we've consciously made an effort of trying to include more women and we haven't really had an opportunity so far to get a whole lot of minority groups um on our podcast but that's just because we're 
located in Portland, Oregon. We can only <laughs> reach and talk to so many people in person. Yeah, but, it's, it's, yeah. hard, it's hard for us to travel very far. But that's something, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, something we really want to increase as we're going forward because women don't always have you know, a strong voice in, in circumstances. They haven't historically. Yeah, haven't uh-huh. historically. Uh-huh. And I, I want to use my platform to be able to promote <laughs> other women as much as I can. Yeah, it's, it's Hannah and Eric, and not Eric and Hannah. Yeah, even yeah. though yes. Eric should be first because alphabetically, but yeah, but Hannah's more important. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've had truly an amazing career so far in birding, and you know, just your your niche in itself, the the quantitative ecologist and statistician, like I don't know a whole lot of women that do that sort of thing or really even enjoy that sort of thing. So it's amazing that you do and you know, you're it sounds like you're promoting a great team of folks that can help, you know, further birding and further the policy that influences our our nation and how it works. Yeah. Well thanks, yeah. That's that's <laughs> what we're trying to do. Yeah. yeah. And I'm lucky awesome. to just work with some really fantastic people. That's great. Well, and do, I, we, do we have time to ask about an adventure? Uh, that's what I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, 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 I want to know. You, you've sounds like you've had a ton of like pretty awesome adventures, living in Costa Rica and Panama and Yosemite, Yosemite, and all, all yep. that stuff. Have you done something recently? Like, it doesn't have to be like as it, Grand. amazing as living in Costa Rica and birding. <laughs> but have, have you gone on a, a recent birding adventure? Like, even if it's just like to the coast or to. I did. So I just I went to the Yucatan Peninsula for the first time uh, oh. over the holidays. So Fun. yeah, in December uh, to get away from you know Portland's wonderful rain. Uh, <laughs> so forget this. I'm going to Mexico for some sun. And of course I had you know of course I'm me. So I brought the binoculars and mm-hmm. scheduled a couple birding trips. My sister who travels with me is not a birder, but she's very patient. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's, and, that's about half the battle finding someone that's patient. Exactly. <laughs> she enjoys it. She's just not as much you know. She's not as much of a enthusiast as I am. Uh, but it was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, we climbed uh, pyramids. Uh, Koba, you get to climb to the top of. Oh, Chichen Itza. Okay, it wasn't about yeah. birding, although I was hearing birds everywhere and it was driving me nuts because I wanted to <laughs> chase them. But we got up on Christmas morning. We got up before sunrise and walked out. We were staying right next door to Chichen Itza and we could sneak, go in the side door uh, with a guide and stand there at the pyramid and watch the sunrise oh right gosh. behind it. You know, and then when all kinds of, you know, Orioles and grackles and, you know, <laughs> who knows what's singing in the trees all around you. And then one of the highlights for me was, um, we went up to Celestune, which is on the uh, northwestish coast of Yucatan Peninsula. And I got to see my first ever flamingos in the wild. Oh, wow. And I was hoping for just one flamingo. We got on the boat and you go out to this area where the flamingos are. And I saw my first couple flamingos. And, oh, wow. Yay, I got my life Day, flamingo. Day is made. And then I notice there's this pink streak across the horizon. And we get closer, and it was literally, the guy said about 2,000 flamingos. Oh, my, oh my gosh. gosh. So, <laughs> yeah. Sea that's, of flamingos. That's crazy. That, that was a fun birding adventure. That's did awesome. You, did you go in Chichen Itza and do the Quetzal clap thing? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I even got a video recording of that. Oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, it was, it was cool. And, I, you know, I've been lucky enough to see a Quetzal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, living in Costa Rica, and it, it did really sound like a Quetzal. It was cool. Awesome. Yeah, we, we we saw a Quetzal a couple weeks ago when we were in Costa Rica, but we didn't. It didn't make any noise. Yeah, <laughs> I have no idea what it sounds and like. And when we went to Chichen Itza, there were too many people there. So yeah. I mean, even if we did the clap, I don't think we could have heard it. <laughs> there, yeah, there was. We, we went. It was like late in the afternoon. Yeah. So it was like all, all the vendors were all set up oh at like the, um, the entrance oh, road. Oh gosh, coming it was in. crazy running the gauntlet. Yeah, yeah. You had to go through. Oh, yeah, that was that was insane. It was a whole different experience. But then once yeah. once you get to the pyramid, it's not so bad. But there's still so many people everywhere. Yes. Yeah. All, all the tourists that are there, and they're all enjoying and having a good time. Mm-hmm. But they're all there. Well, that's a that's a really <laughs> cool adventure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was really fun. That'd be cool to see that many flamingos. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, do you have anything else that you'd like to say? Yeah, just really briefly, I yeah, just wanted yeah. to mention our Climate Watch program. Oh, let's, yeah, do it. Another, yeah. let's do it. Another relatively new one. It's been around for a couple of years, but uh, we just opened it up to the general public. We we're kind of beta testing it with, with um, you know, certain chapters to get it started. And so, Climate Watch is uh, it's another community science program, and it's all about taking these climate projections that I talked about. 
earlier and testing them because, okay, we can say this is where we think the birds will be uh, because it has the right climate, but are they actually going to be able to move? You know, maybe they can't, maybe they won't. And so we're sending uh, volunteers out to areas where the birds are predicted to be in the future or where they are now, but they're predicted to be lost in the future and having them do some counts. Uh, so far we've been focusing on bluebirds and nuthatches. We're adding in some goldfinches and towhees and painted bunting, for those of you living down in Texas and Florida. <laughs> and or went to, used to go to Texas or Florida. And uh, yeah, we're, we're learning a lot. And so far we're seeing that each species is behaving a little bit differently. You know, some, some are moving out of areas that are, are becoming not as good for them, not as suitable, uh, while others aren't. And similarly, some are moving into areas that are becoming more suitable for them and others aren't. So it just, you know, these species-specific responses mean that it's all the more important to have, have more data, uh, you know, to be able to, to predict how climate change is going to affect birds. So this is another way for community scientists to get involved and help protect birds. Well, that's yeah. awesome. That's not, we're so, going to have to look into that more. Yeah, so how, how do you find out information about getting... I will send you links. Send you links. All right, we'll include them in the show notes. Yeah, that'd okay. be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you so much for taking yeah. some time out of your busy schedule. I know you've got a lot going on and, and talking with us about the Audubon and about all these other topics we've talked about. Yeah. <laughs> we really appreciate it. And, yeah. and sharing your fantastic Yucatan yeah. adventure. That's right. Give, give us some ideas for when we get the chance to go down there again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, do the Sunrise Tour. Worth yeah. it. All right, well, thanks, you guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, and thank you. Isn't she brilliant? Yeah. Yeah, I'm so glad that we got a chance to actually sit down and talk to her. I, I didn't know anything about her until we, like, we, we, when we talked to her at the Christmas bird count, I had no idea that she had lived in so many different places <laughs> right. all around the world and had done so much, so much birding. And it was bird banding. Bird band, just bird everything. Bird science. Bird science around the country. Oh, she's and my hero. Some pretty, pretty awesome stuff, li- living, living in the Yosemite and all sorts of crazy things. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> kudos to you, Nicole, for li- leading an awesome life. And thank you so much for sitting down with us, enjoying um, a beer with us, and yeah. and chatting about the amazing things that you do. And we hope you all enjoyed it. Um, one thing I did want to note is that article that we had kind of mentioned the um, the feminist birding revolution. The fe- feminist birding revolution by Olivia Gentile. 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 Anyways, uh, we will be including that article in the show notes, and I encourage you to check it out. There has been a lot of really interesting conversation on some of the birding women Facebook groups that I'm a part of um, about this sort of thing, and I just am really encouraged to hear that this conversation is kind of being brought up. Like, I don't want to... I've heard a lot of negative things about, like, well, why are we bringing this up and birding? It's not really a problem. But, honestly... I do feel like it's not it's not as big a problem with like sexual harassment or anything like that in the workplace, but it's something that I have faced in my life is um you know think maybe thinking less of me because I'm a woman birder or i i fa- I feel like I have faced some hardships in yeah. the field with birding not not to say that like it's been a horrible experience or anything, but it's just been kind of degrading at some points in my life and also discouraging that have made me want to quit because you know this thing happened Mm -hmm. and I just really hope we can get to a point where you know women which this isn't the case with everybody not everybody has had a situation like that um but I hope we can get to a place where this that doesn't happen and it doesn't discourage women from bird watching because bird watching is an amazing thing that I think everybody should do. And we, we sing the gospel of birding everywhere we go. You know, have you heard the word of the bird? The bird is the word. (laughs) (laughs) Um, birding is a verb. So anyways, on off my soapbox, you know, I'm, I'm just so encouraged to see that there's people thinking about this sort of thing that we're not necessarily just like sweeping it under the rug, but 
trying to, um, you know, look at our culture, our burning culture and see what it is and see if there is anything to be done to improve it. Yeah. So it's more welcoming to more people. So, yeah. Sorry for my rant, but I just, I really encourage you guys to read it, you know, form your own opinions um, with your experiences that you've had in your life. And I know I'm going to try to make burning more inclusive to more people. Yeah. And I always feel self-conscious of that I'm saying things that I shouldn't be saying or I'm thinking ways that I shouldn't be thinking. But, you know, these these ones are always like a kick to the stomach whenever I read these. Like, oh my gosh, have I, have I made somebody feel this way? Have I done something like this? So. White male shame. Seriously. But, you know, sometimes I'm a terrible person. Sometimes I'm not. You know. <laughs> you have your days. I have my days. And if there is anybody yeah. out there that has had experiences, you know, like hanging there, there are many other women who have. And I think the World Bur- Girl Burning is a very supportive group Yeah. on Facebook of um, over 3,000 women that just are fantastic and, and always there to, you know, support you. Yeah, so I guess thank you guys for listening to the podcast uh, and then our rant. Oh, wait, do you have something else to say? Yeah. Um, oh, so what May 4th. Oh, may the 4th be with us. Yeah. What is it again? It's the global big day. Yep. And then May 6th, what are we doing? 7th, what are we doing? What are we doing on May 7th? We're doing our human-powered oh, that's um, it? Yeah. challenge. So root us on and probably follow me on an Instagram story. I don't know. We'll see if I can make time for that. And also... <laughs> if you have enough battery power in your phone. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and May 8th... Is our regional big day. Yeah. So we're, we're competing in the Great Texas Birding Classic two days. Two days. Down, down there in Texas on the South Texas coast or Central Texas coast. Yeah. So root us on from your desk chair if you're at work. Or outside if you're at work, because there's many different types of work. There's lots of different works. Yes. So, (laughs) (laughs) thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you guys for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and or learned something new. Um, Or learned something that you already knew and relearned it. Who knows? Um, We'd like for you guys to rate and review and subscribe to us on... We'd appreciate it. Yeah. On Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music. Facebook. Facebook. I would like to see if um, the... the Amazon Alexa, if or Google Alexa, if we can. Yeah, if anybody knows about that, yeah. if you say um, "play Hannah and Eric go burden." Yeah, see, l- let us know if that works. I don't, I don't have any idea. I don't have a. We're not fancy enough. I don't for have that. an Alexa, so I don't know how that works. Anyways, if you'd like to connect with us, um, you can follow us on Instagram at Hannah goes burning. Hannah with an H. Eric goes burning. Eric with a K. Um, you can also follow us on Facebook, Hannah and Eric go burning, or email us uh, Hannah and Eric go burning at gmail dot com. Tell us what you liked. Tell us what you liked, or tell us what you liked. You know, whatever. <laughs> Compliment sandwich that stuff. <laughs> like, like, like. <laughs> it's a three-layered sandwich. It's all delicious. <laughs> Anyways, that, you can send us questions there. You could just tell us that stuff and chat with us. You know, make us whatever. Feel like there's other people out there. Yeah, and then share us too. Share us with people, and thank you for listening. Sharing is caring. Sharing is caring.